Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 41, Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. We're going to continue our study tonight in Deuteronomy 29, whereby Moses is presenting the curses and the blessings of the law in summary form. All of Israel is present even the foreigners who've joined up with Israel. For this sermon of exhortation by the anointed leader of Israel, whose time is now very short. Now he's been reminding this second generation of the Exodus, only a few of which personally witnessed those horrors visited upon the Egyptians, that these blows against Egypt were God's wrath for the purpose of gaining Israel's release from the hand of the enemy. But the Lord will visit every one of those same judgments upon Israel if they fail to live up to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Not only that, but he would return Israel to the enemy, here in metaphorically referred to as Egypt. That is, Israel would be exiled from the promised land that they're only now on the verge of occupying, and instead they'll be forced to live in subjugation to another people in another land. Now we ended our last lesson by discussing verse 22 of chapter 29, whereby the land of promise itself would actually suffer from the curses of God right along with the people. The soil would no longer produce. It would be as if it was the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, dead, infertile. The agent for this infertility of Sodom and Gomorrah was sulfur and salt. And the soil of Israel would behave as though some enemy had spread sulfur and salt upon it. It's a fact of history that since Israel's conquering of Canaan under Joshua, the only times that the land of Israel was fertile and fruitful were when the Israelites lived there. Each time they were exiled, the land went fallow. Israel, the people... Without Israel, the land is incomplete. The beautiful farms and greenhouses that dominate Israel's landscape today only began to reappear in the early 1900s as Jews began to seek refuge from their plight in Europe. As more came, the land seemed to respond as a pneumonia victim visibly responds to modern antibiotics. The malaria-ridden swamps were drained and they became farmland. The desert bloomed. The hillsides became lush with olive and pistachio trees and now today even mangoes and bananas. It's amazing. Now it might come as a surprise, but the Gaza Strip had become known as Israel's greenhouse. It produced about one half of all the kosher food products for Israel. 
In the short time since Israel buckled to international pressure and has evacuated it and given it over to the Palestinians, the food production has dropped so drastically it can't even feed the rather small Palestinian population of Gaza anymore. Let's reread a short section of Deuteronomy chapter 29 to get our bearings. We're going to read chapter, let's see, chapter 29, verse 21 to the end. When the next generation, your children who grow up after you, and the foreigner who arrives from a distant land, see the plagues of that land and the diseases with which Adonai has made it sick, and that the whole land has become burning sulfur and salt, that it isn't being sown or bearing crops or even producing grass, like the overthrow of Saddam, Gomorrah, Admah, and Sfoim, which Adonai overthrew in his furious anger, then all the nations will ask, why did Adonai do that to this land? What is the meaning of such frenzied, furious anger? And people will answer, it's because they abandoned the covenant of Adonai, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods, prostrating themselves before them, gods they hadn't known, gods which he had not assigned them. For this reason, the anger of Adonai blazed up against this land, and it brought upon it every curse written in this book. And Adonai, in his anger and fury, incensed with indignation, uprooted them from their land. He threw them out to another land, as it is today. Things which are hidden belong to Adonai our God. But the things that have been revealed belong to us, to our children forever so that we can observe all the words of this Torah. You know, we know from many of the ancient documents discovered in the Middle East that several nations employed this kind of boilerplate format in their treaties that laid out Threats of what would happen if a subjugated city or state violated a, a, a treaty and thus brought upon them the wrath of the more powerful king who lorded over them. They could get very graphic, very specific about the terrible outcome of rebellion. Therefore, we, we shouldn't be surprised to see that same kind of format used here in relation to God, Israel, and the blessings and curses of the covenant that's between them. Now, the difference between the standard earthly treaties established with the vassal states and the empires that controlled them versus what's being pronounced in Deuteronomy is that the exact happenings envisioned for treaty violation were prophetic for Israel. In those earthly treaties among nations, these were mainly exaggerated threats designed to elicit fear in hopes of keeping the subjugated in line. But in the case of Deuteronomy, this was God speaking to Israel and he doesn't make idle threats. Or does he retaliate with overly harsh, unjust consequences as a means of control? 
We find that everything Yehovah said Israel would eventually do, they did. And everything he would do to them in consequence of their rebellion, he did. These verses state that the level of devastation upon Israel for their rebellion will be such that foreigners who travel to Israel and the next generation of Israelites who bear the burden of all these curses will ask, what could have caused this to happen? The reason for this amazement at what happened to Israel is twofold. First, because it had become obvious to Israel's neighbors that the God of Israel was very powerful and that he had overwhelmingly blessed this land with more fruitfulness than it had ever before enjoyed. Second was that it made no sense that Israel's God would then turn around and come against his own people whom he'd gone to such great lengths to establish in the land of Canaan. Thus the question is begged, what's the meaning of such frenzied, frenzied, furious anger by God? In other words, what could Israel have possibly done to bring down wrath this severe upon their heads? Israel's neighbors and then their descendants wouldn't understand what Israel had done wrong. You know, it's interesting how rebellion against God usually happens. More often than not, it isn't dramatic, but rather it's subtle. It all feels and appears to be perfectly normal. The rebellion can go unrecognized because at times the rebellious activity seems to be even pious in nature, as the majority of people agree with it and move blithely forward oblivious to their precarious position. Even in the most extreme cases, such as the, the Inquisition, whereby the church burned thousands of people at the stake, imprisoned and tortured countless thousands more, and sought to push the Jews out of Europe, few within the church questioned whether or not what they were doing was godly. What could be more godly than to seek out and destroy heretics? Now while today we don't have anything quite like the Inquisition happening within the church, we have slowly and surely adopted habits, customs, that bring us closer to the world. And by definition, pushes us away from God. The goal being to make the world more comfortable with us. Often, the only real outcry among the secular against the church is when one segment of the church does something outrageous, like to dare to speak out against abortion on demand, or to deny the legitimacy of homosexual marriage or to defend Israel as belonging solely to the Jewish people. And even then the outcry usually comes from another segment of the church that sides with Israel's enemies and finds nothing particularly wrong with abortion and embraces even homosexuality. 
Several New Testament scriptures speak of the return of Messiah and the aftermath of that return. And one of the results is going to be that people, churchgoers, others as well, are going to be surprised and confused as large numbers of seemingly nice, pious people, including many who fill the pews every Sunday, find themselves directly in the crosshairs of God's wrath. The world and much of the church and synagogue is going to ask this question posed rhetorically in Deuteronomy 29.23. What is the meaning, God, of all your frenzied, furious anger? They won't understand. We won't understand. After all, everything seems fine. And Yeshua has explained that his personal response to those masses who raise their hands to the heavens and shout to God, why at all this coming calamity? He says this in Matthew 7.22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeshua's answer was, these people are going to be utterly shocked objects of God's wrath. But he calls them something interesting. The workers of lawlessness. What does that mean? The workers of lawlessness. Does that mean that people who steal cars are going to hell? Does that mean if you drive 10 miles an hour over the speed limit that you're destined for God's wrath? After all, is it not the position of most Christian leadership that once we're saved, there's no amount of lawlessness we can commit that ever bring God's wrath upon us? The answer answer is really quite logical. When the Bible speaks of law, it's only speaking of the Torah laws, the biblical commands. The only law that any Jew called law was God's law. While Yeshua, Yeshua certainly did not advocate the Jews thumbing their noses at the Roman law code, neither can we seriously think that if a Jew refused to follow the laws of the Roman Empire, such as bowing down to Caesar, or observing a day of worship for Zeus, or not properly paying their taxes, that this is what amounted to lawlessness. Christ's statement wasn't referring to the differing civil and criminal national law codes of various states and countries in the world then or that would come in future times. He was referring to the only law there was for a Jew, the Torah. Are you hearing me? Yeshua's worker of lawlessness is a worker of Torah-lessness. 
Jesus is talking about law from God's standpoint, not from the earthly standpoint. Yeshua is saying, get away from me, all of you who ignore God's commandments. But you play all the fine games of going to synagogue or church without fail, observing all the holy days, even inventing a few of your own, or behaving piously in congregation meetings, but actually having no relationship with the Lord at all. The New Testament answer is, not surprisingly, the same as the Old Testament answer to what happened to Israel. Because the Old Testament establishes the pattern. Deuteronomy 29.24 says that God's wrath came upon Israel because they abandoned the Mosaic Covenant. They went and they served other gods. They served things that weren't assigned to them. Things reserved for the world in general, not for Jehovah's set-apart people. And it was for this reason that those who seemed outwardly to be a part of the community of believers in good standing, in this case Israel, they were removed from the promised land after they had been redeemed. After they had been given the commandments. After they had arrived in the land of the Lord's rest. After they had settled there. Since Israel's exiles were always national, not individual judgments, all Hebrews were affected, no matter what their personal and individual status was before God. As Paul says to the new group of Gentile believers in Romans 11, starting at 19, he says, So you'll say, Well, you see, branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God didn't spare his natural branches, he's not going to spare you new Gentile believers. So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off too. That's powerful. That is a powerful statement. Redemption, follow me, redemption was reversed because the redeemed walked away from it on their own volition. The final verse of this chapter is one that could be... Well, I could teach on it for hours. Relax, I'm not going to do that. It says that there are those revealed things of God that belongs to Israel and to their children forever. And that's so that those things can be observed. In other words, they can be followed. They can be obeyed. Those revealed things are what? The Word of God. 
the Torah, all Scripture for that matter. Those are the revealed things. Then again, there are those hidden things that belongs only to Adonai. They are for Him to know. They're for Israel to wonder about. They're for us to wonder about. As we're nearing the end of Moses' sermons, I'm going to take this opportunity to sermonize a bit on a subject I think is important for our time. There's so much that we can take from this principle of things revealed so that man can apprehend them as opposed to things known only to God for his own good pleasure and purpose. One of the greatest tools that we as believers have is the Torah because in it the foundation for redemption is laid. And within the laws and commands we find out what pleases God and what displeases Him. We find out what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Yet, since about the beginning of the 3rd century A.D., the Torah has been tossed aside by a Gentile-oriented institutional church as not only irrelevant, but abolished. And the sad results of this are self-evident for those who have the eyes to see. Yet there are also those more subtle effects that can go unnoticed and unguarded even to the most vigilant. I'd like to quote the noted Bible scholar and author Thomas Scott as he makes this very point, I think, very eloquently. He says this, Almost all the heresies and controversies which have corrupted the purity or disturbed the peace of the church in every age have originated from disregard to this distinction. It is from vain attempts based on human reasonings, based on church authorities in order to fill up supposed chasms in God's revelation and to make it more apparently consistent and systematical than it pleased God to make it in his word to us. From deducing disputable consequences of God's revelation scriptures or from tracing back the words sacred mysteries to some unrevealed cause, silence can be a more appropriate response in the face of some of these ultimate mysteries. What Professor Scott is saying is that it is our penchant for wanting to know the whys and wherefores of everything in Scripture. And this leads us to fanciful imaginings of what God's purposes might be for everything. And this has created the hopelessly divided body of Christ that we are today. Further, especially in the Western world, we've decided that God needs our help in the telling and structuring of His laws and principles as if the Word itself isn't complete. We've decided that our intellects 
aren't sufficiently satisfied if we cannot take the Bible and form it into a very well-defined system that has a ready answer for every theological and social question, whether the answer to that question is directly addressed in the Bible or not. The modern church lingo for these ready answers is faith doctrines. In our age, Christianity has taken its eye off the ball. We've become infatuated with the future. We're all convinced to one level or another that we're living in the period of time that the Bible calls the last days. And to satisfy this infatuation, we have every sort of of theological theory put forth that purports to have most, if not all, the truth about what is going to happen in the near future. These theological theories go by all sorts of fancy names. Post and pre-millennialism, mid and post-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture, goes on and on and on. The best-selling book series, Left Behind, has profited from this fascination. It's created a loyal following to the point that a large segment of the church gives great credence to the speculations of this author's in-times fictional story. I had a pastor of a megachurch tell me to my face that if I did not believe in a mid-tribulation rapture timing, that I had no place in his congregation, that he would have to question the authenticity of my salvation. (coughs) Now sadly, we have made it that if enough people in authority, or enough famous people, agree on a certain path of a prophetic future, even though the scripture may make no concrete mention of it, then it becomes fact. And often even the basis of some denominations' pillars of faith. It also becomes a cause for derision and exclusion to anybody who would think otherwise. Somehow we must again become content with the fact that is stated so plainly and succinctly in Deuteronomy 29.28. The hidden things are God's. The revealed things belong to us. Said in the negative, the hidden things aren't for us to know or they wouldn't be hidden. Because of our modern preoccupation with these hidden things, these prophetic things, we often pay scarce attention to the revealed things. The written word, Holy Scripture, with its very clear directions and commands. I suppose it's a lot easier to think about a glorious and exciting future as envisioned by somebody in authority than it is to abide by the revealed laws and commands that can be kind of inconvenient. At times they can stifle our individualism. But to think that we can discern with any real detail the unrevealed prophetic mysteries held by God 
is more than arrogant, it's dangerous. The Jewish sages and religious authorities of the decades leading up to the birth of Yeshua were anxiously awaiting the scripturally prophesied coming of their Jewish Messiah. They were waiting, hoping, pleading. Their untenable circumstances of being under this long-term oppression by Rome led many of them to a preoccupation of hoping and planning for that glorious advent of the Deliverer sometime, hopefully, in the near future. All manner of theories about who he'd be, how he'd appear, where he'd appear, under what circumstances, when he would reveal himself. All this led to a host of uncompromising doctrines that left little room for disagreement. So convinced were all these various Jewish religious authorities that the Lord had supposedly revealed to them insights on the coming of the Jewish Messiah that had heretofore been publicly unrevealed to other men. That when the Messiah did come, the bulk of the terribly misled Jewish population dismissed it. The Jewish Savior from Nazareth simply didn't fit the rigid mold of this erroneous bunch of man-made doctrines that the various religious intellectuals and leadership had concocted and then declared as unassailable truth. And thus, all who thought otherwise were heretics. You know, Isaac Newton was a theologian long before he was a scientist. And he once said that the purpose of Bible prophecy was not to give us a glimpse of the future. It was so we could look back at the already fulfilled prophecies and see the immutable faithfulness of God. Let's be satisfied with what Yehovah has already revealed to us and with letting the unrevealed future play out as only he knows it will so that we're not working at cross purposes to the Lord or or blind, worse yet, blind to, to divinely ordained events as they come about. Let us determine to focus our time and effort on the revealed things of God. Let the mysteries of God remain that way. Let's focus on His Word, on His Torah, His entire Bible. Pray for discernment about what He's already plainly given to us and He expects us to observe it. There's more than we can swallow in a lifetime anyway. Let's move on to chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. When the time arrives that all these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse which I have presented to you, 
and you were there among the nations to which Adonai your God has driven you, then at last you'll start thinking about what's happened to you. And you will return to Adonai your God and you'll pay attention to what he has said, which will be exactly what I'm ordering you to do today. You and your children. With all your heart and all your being. At that point, Adonai your God will reverse your exile. He'll show you mercy. He'll return and gather you from all the peoples to which Adonai your God has scattered you. If one of yours was scattered to the far end of the sky, Adonai your God will gather you even from there. He will go there. He'll get you. Adonai your God will bring you back into the land your ancestors possessed. You will possess it. He will make you prosper there. You will become even more numerous than your ancestors. Then Adonai your God will circumcise your hearts, the hearts of your children, so that you will love Adonai your God with all your heart, all your being, and thus you will live. Adonai your God will put all these curses on your enemies, on those who hated and persecuted you. But you... You will return and pay attention to what Adonai says. Obey all his mitzvot, his commands, which I'm giving you today. Then Adonai, your God, will give you more than enough in everything you set out to do. The fruit of your body, the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of your land will all do well. For Adonai will once again rejoice to see you do well, just as he has rejoiced in your ancestors. However, All this will happen only if you pay attention to what Adonai your God says. So that you obey his commands and regulations which are written in this book of the Torah. If you turn to Adonai your God with all of your heart and all of your being. For this command which I'm giving you today, it's not too hard for you. It's not beyond your reach. It isn't up in the sky so that you need to ask who will go up to the sky for us and bring it down to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it. Likewise, it isn't beyond the sea so that you need to ask who will cross over that sea for us and, and bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it. On the contrary, that word is very close to you. In your mouth. Even in your heart. Therefore, you can do it. Look, I'm presenting you today with, on the one hand, life and good, and on the other hand, death and evil. In that I'm ordering you today to love Adonai your God, to follow His ways, to obey His commandments, His regulations, His rulings, because if you do, you will live and increase your numbers, and Adonai your God will bless you in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, if you refuse to listen, if you're drawn away to prostrate yourselves before other gods and to serve them, I'm announcing to you today that you will perish. You will not live long in the land you are crossing in the Jordan to enter and possess. I call on heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have presented you with life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life so that you will live 
you and your descendants. Loving Adonai, your God, paying attention to what he says and clinging to him. For that is the purpose of your life. On this depends the length of time you will live in the land that Adonai swore he'd give to your ancestors, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Well, Moses takes a short detour from his summoning all of Israel to the renewal of the covenant in the first 10 verses of chapter 30. You know, if this chapter were given a name all to itself, it would be return and restoration. The first few verses, in fact, employ a a repetition of various forms of, of a Hebrew word, shuv, shuv, that means to turn or to return. So the theme of at least the first half of chapter 30 is that if the exiled Israelites will return to God, God will return them to the promised land. If the Hebrews will turn away from their apostasy, God will turn away from his wrath upon them. Shuv. Please carefully note something in verse 1 that I've made a point of emphasis the last couple of lessons. The verse employs the terms the blessing and the curse. It says that God has set Israel before Israel two different possible paths. One that leads to the blessing of the law, the other that leads to the curse of the law. The emphasis I've been making is to try and undo an erroneous church doctrine that has fouled and polluted so many other of our doctrines. And that false doctrine is that when Paul says believers are no longer to live under the curse of the law, that he means that the law itself is a curse. And so, we have no obligation to it. And that's why the church has been so anxious for 1,800 years to denounce the law as a bad thing. It's faulty. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's my prayer that those of you who have been studying Torah with us now see that the curse of the law is well defined in the Bible as the consequence of breaking the law, falling away from God, apostizing. The curse isn't the law itself. In fact, as we work our way through this chapter, Moses expounds a bit on exactly what the terms the blessing and the curse of the law actually mean. So God says that while in exile, if Israel will accept his verdict for what it is, well-deserved divine judgment, and realize that the cause of it was their rebellion, and if they will turn back to the Lord by means of following his commandments now, the Torah, then the Lord will take them back in love.
Verse 2 says this repentance must be with all of our heart and all of our soul. Meaning that this must be sincere. Must be fully ready to start anew under those covenant terms. See, there's a substantial difference between repenting from our sinful ways and merely gaining a conscious realization that we have been of disobeying the Lord. And thus, we want relief from a bad situation that our disobedience has caused us. There's an even bigger difference between desiring a change in our entire being that reflects a newfound relationship with God that focuses on obedience than simply wanting our difficult circumstances to be changed. Of course exiled Israel wanted their circumstances of being unwanted aliens in a foreign land under the subjugation of a pagan king to be changed. Who wouldn't? But that hope for change would not soften the Lord's stance on his people because what they had to do was that they had to turn away from the path of wickedness that they had chosen and return to him. Moses says that if one of the exiled Hebrews is at the ends of the earth, farthest away from the promised land that you can get on this planet, then even from there the Lord will go and bring that person back. If, if they repent. Now we're going to see this theme echoed in all the books of the prophets as they prophesied that the Lord will return Israel to the land and bring people home from the most remote reaches of this planet. But this same theme doesn't end there. Jesus also employs it. Listen to Luke 15.3. So he, Yeshua, told them this parable. If if one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the other 99 in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he does find it, he joyfully hoists it onto his shoulders. And when he gets home, he calls all his friends and neighbors together and says, Come, come, celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns to God from his sins than over the 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. The Lord will return anyone who turns from his or her sin to the kingdom of God. This is so central to every believer. We looked carefully at both the Old Testament pattern and the matching New Testament pattern that shows that while no human or spiritual being can ever forcefully take one who is the Lord's away from him, that a person can choose to walk away from the Lord, to renounce him as their God. At the same time, if that person comes to his or her senses and they repent 
And they desire a new and a sincere relationship with God under the terms of the covenant, then the Lord is keen to take them back. This is why James, brother of Jesus, says so poignantly that if a brother goes after a brother who has fallen away from the faith and brings him back, it will be saving that fallen brother from the eternal death. Just as the Lord sent his judges and prophets to chastise his people as they got closer and closer to that line in the sand that's only visible to God, the one that when you cross over it, destroys your, our relationship with him. After Israel inevitably crossed that line and were exiled, the prophets also exhorted the people to repent. Come back. Come back. Beginning in verse 6, Moses says that it is God who will open up your heart and the hearts of your children to love him completely. He'll do it. Understand the sequence. First, there is the sincere desire within us for God. Then he takes the action of dealing with our hearts. That's the sequence. Let me say it one more time to you. Heart means mind. Heart is a literal translation of the Hebrew word lev. But in the ancient times, in fact, right on up until about 400 A.D., it was universally believed that the heart organ was where our thought processes occurred. In other words, whereas we know today that the brain organ is where thinking happens, the ancients thought it was the heart. The ancients thought that our minds were located in our chest, in our heart. So we'll often see the word heart in the Bible and we'll see the word mind, but it's referring to the same thing. It's a couplet. Whenever you see the word heart in the Bible, just replace it with the word mind, and you'll have the intended meaning of it. God therefore says that he will deal with the minds of those who return to him and put love in their minds towards him. Over and over our pastors our rabbis have correctly uttered the words, love is a decision. Because love is a function of our brains. Our minds. Just as some have begun to correctly point out that love is also an action. Love as a feeling is valid to a point. But it is as a result of love in our minds that we get this feeling, this emotion of warmth and affection. The point that we ought to take away from this verse is the divine intervention of God in the minds of humans to give a full love of Him to those who desire him. Now, that's probably not at all a new principle to you because that's a foundational principle of the New Testament. The thing is, as we've been learning, it's that these principles that are almost universally portrayed 
as being New Testament principles are in fact long-established Torah principles brought forward. Moses also says that the Lord will now inflict upon those nations who conquered Israel and sent them into exile the same set of curses that he has inflicted upon Israel. You know, it's truly fascinating how God's mind and actions operate. He raises up nations to use his hand of wrath against his own people, and then when they inflict war and strife upon Israel, he punishes them for it. I mean, truly, this is one of those many mysteries of God. I mean, I can understand the rationale on kind of a surface level, but I just can't get underneath it. Because it's one of those hidden things that this chapter 29 tells us about. A hidden thing that by definition belongs only to Jehovah. I mean, I don't know if it's something he doesn't want us to know or something that our very limited mental capacities have no ability to know. What God has revealed is that in his divine providence, he allows nations to become wicked and far from him. He allows nations to grow in irrational hatred or jealousy against Israel. And at the same time, he gives Israel the free will to choose the road to blessings or curses. And when Israel chooses the road to curses, he uses those wicked nations to punish the apple of his eye in order that Israel will repent and return. But because that nation was evil, which is what gave them that satanically placed irrational hatred of Israel in them in the first place, God's perfectly justified in bringing his wrath against them for treating his people so badly. Well, you talk about irony. Now, let me remind you of something about the Hebrew word for nations. It's goyim. Goyim means nations, but it also means Gentiles. It's never a word applied to Israel for one very good reason. Goyim are all the people on earth except for Israel. So for the sake of our getting a better picture of the meaning and intent of that word's use in Holy Scripture, we would do well to say Gentile nations instead of just nations. Gives us a better idea of what's being talked about here. My point is that by definition, it's always Gentiles who come against Israel. Always. God's always using Gentiles for his purpose of Israel coming back to him. He's always using Gentiles to save Israel. Therefore, it's always Gentiles who God is punishing for their mistreatment of Israel. At the same time, he's punishing Israel by using those Gentiles. That's never changed. Paul talks about it in Romans 11.25. He says, Brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed, but now he's revealed. 
the hidden thing became revealed so that you won't imagine that you know more than you do. It's that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And it is in this way that all Israel will get saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov, from Jacob, from Israel. God is using Gentiles today as both a stick and a carrot to bring Israel back into the kingdom of God. The carrot is the gospel that Gentile Christians have only recently begun to bring to the Jewish people in a loving way. The stick is the Gentile nations that have become so terribly anti-Semitic, have driven the Jewish people out, and oddly, back to the only place they can live under a Jewish government, the promised land, Israel. The stick is also the Gentile nations that today surround Israel. Muslims who want to annihilate Israel. Yet as always the core of God's salvation purpose is for the benefit of his people. Therefore, as Paul says, now Romans, don't you imagine that you know more than you actually do? You see, because it is in this way, using Gentiles, that all Israel is going to get saved. Well, Gentile believers, if that doesn't humble you, and at the same time show you the immense value of God's Jewish people, I'm not sure what's going to do it. In verse 11, Moses gets back on track now after explaining that return and restoration are possible when Israel falls away. They don't have to remain in permanent exile. And he resumes by saying something that completely refutes another all-too-common Christian doctrine that needs to be relegated once and for all to the waste bin. Moses says that the terms of the covenant, the Torah, the law, is not too hard for you. You can do it. The Torah is not unintelligible. It is not unaccessible. It is not part of those hidden things of God. It is revealed. We have it. So we're to obey it. In an earlier chapter, Moses instructed that at Mount Gerizim and Ebal, enormous flat stones plastered and then inscribed with the words of the Torah, they were to be erected and the words placed upon them were to be plainly written. The idea expressed here is that while the priests and the Levites are indeed the teachers and administrators of the Torah, they're not the source of the law and they're not the only ones capable of comprehending its meaning and they're not the only ones correctly observing the laws and commandments. So not only is the Torah knowable, it's also at hand. 
It is doable, and God fully expects it to be done. How often have we heard that the reason the new covenant was instituted is because the Mosaic covenant was impossible to keep? If that's the case, then God is a liar. God is not a liar. Right here in verses 11 through 14, through Moses, it says explicitly, this is not too hard for you. Therefore, says verse 15, here is the summation of all that the Torah is about. In the end, on the one hand, life and prosperity. On the other hand, death and adversity. Life and prosperity equals the blessings of the law. Death and adversity equals the curse of the law. But, and here's the secret to living the Torah life as God intends, there are three ingredients necessary for us to maintain our relationship with the Lord. Verse 16 says these three ingredients are love your God, walk in His ways, keep His commandments. Pretty simple. Love your God, walk in His ways, keep His commandments. Allow me to paraphrase this in more modern terms. Trust God. Of course, that means trusting His Messiah. Live your life according to biblical principles and obey the Torah. Trust, live, obey. Trust, live, obey. To obey the commandments without trusting God is worthless. Talk about busting your pick. To trust God, but to be disobedient is a fruitless life. To observe the biblical commandments, but not to trust God, not to have a personal relationship with Him, relegates us to permanent separation from Him. And in verse 17, Moses again cautions that to know the law, but to turn away from God, means exile. To mix in the worship of other gods with the worship of Jehovah means exile. So choose life. This isn't hard. Choose life. This is what it means when it says in the New Testament that it is God's will that all be saved. He's saying, please, choose life. Please, choose life. It's God's will that Israel and we choose life. Choose the blessings of the covenant by means of trusting that Yeshua is our Savior and that Yeshua is God. But notice the three-part commandment. In order to live the kind of life that a believer should, obedience to God's commandments is necessary. Disobedience draws us closer and closer to that 
line in the sand. Disobedience takes us taken to this, to a high enough level. Only God knows where that level is. I don't know where it is. Puts us across that line in the sand. Which is then separation from Him. Next week we'll begin chapter 31. That's the record of Moses' last days.